I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 31, but I'm going to just begin reading for us in uh, verse 22. Mark 14, beginning at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, that is, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new in, new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would never take for granted the privilege and honor it is to be able to hear your word taught and proclaimed and read. The fact that we are able to gather here and to hear your holy scriptures. Lord, may we forever treasure these moments. And may you give us hearts that are hungry for your word. So that that hunger would lead to a great satisfaction and delight in Jesus. Give us ears to hear this morning. Give us minds to understand and give us hearts to receive your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, you've probably had the experience um, of being around someone who believed themselves to be good at something, but as a matter of fact, they weren't all that good. I remember back in the day when uh, American Idol was a big thing, and every so often you would get these horrible singers who would audition, truly believing they were great singers. And cruel Simon Cowell would always have to, I think he took delight in it, break the news to them that they were in fact awful singers. And many of the singers didn't receive that news very well. They were convinced that Simon's evaluation of them was wrong. And one has to ask, how is it possible that someone could be so unaware of the reality that they can't sing? Now, of course, we know it's because they're tone deaf. 
But it's also the fact that they are so prideful that even when experts in the music industry tell them that they can't sing, they won't accept it as truth. Because that's what pride does. It prevents people from accepting the truth about themselves. And this is what we see in this short passage this morning with Jesus and his disciples. Now, once again, here in these verses, Jesus is, of course, predicting the future. Uh, This has been a common theme in Mark's gospel, especially since Jesus' triumphal entry. He's predicted his, his death on three different occasions. He's predicted that there would be a donkey that had not been ridden for him to use on his triumphal entry. He predicted the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. He predicted the betrayal of Judas. And here, once again, Jesus makes several predictions. For one, he predicts that all the disciples will abandon him. Not only that, he predicts his own resurrection. And then thirdly, he predicts in detail Peter's denying him three times. Now this morning, I'm not going to focus on the significance of his predicting power because we've seen the significance of his predicting power. His predictions have made it quite plain that he has a knowledge of things that is more than human. He has a divine knowledge, which shouldn't surprise us since he is God incarnate. Now that being said, there are three observations that I want us to see from this passage. So let me give them to you all up front, and I've also put them in your bulletin if you want to look at them there. So let me give give them to you all up front, um, one by one, okay? And then we're going to look at them one by one. So here are the three observations, the three things we need to see from verses 26 to 31. The first is this, the blinding pride of Peter and the disciples. Secondly, Jesus' humiliation and vindication. And thirdly, Jesus' restorative grace. So first, the blinding pride of Peter and the disciples. Jesus has just finished the Passover meal with his disciples. He's predicted that one of his very own will betray him. He's radically transformed the Passover meal, demonstrating that he is in fact the Passover lamb who saves his people from their sins and establishes a new covenant in his blood. And after this meal, we're told in verse 26 that they sung a hymn and then they made their way to the Mount of Olives. And it's here where Jesus informs them of some deeply startling news. He tells all of them that they will desert and abandon him. Verse 27, and Jesus said to them, that is his 12 disciples, at this point it would have been 11, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Every single one of you will fall away. Now he quotes from Zechariah 13.7. And in quoting this passage, he's making it clear that he's the shepherd and the disciples are the sheep. And when the shepherd gets struck, they will all be scattered. That is, they will all fall away. They will all abandon Jesus in his darkest moment. Now, it's no surprise that the first person to respond to Jesus' claim is Peter. 
shocking. And he doesn't like what Jesus had claimed. In fact, he thinks Jesus is outright wrong. Look at what Peter says to him in verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Now you have to think about what it is that Peter's implying in his response. On the one hand, he's claiming to be superior, stronger, more courageous, and more devoted than all the other disciples. If all the others fall away, Jesus, I won't because I'm not like them. And on the other hand, and this is probably even more shocking, he's claiming that Jesus is not just wrong about the future, but he's wrong about him. Jesus, you've just claimed that I'm going to abandon you, but you're wrong. You might be right about the other disciples, but you're not right about me. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter has challenged Jesus. If you remember in Mark 8, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, and, and Jesus then begins to tell them that he's going to suffer and be killed, and Peter has the audacity to rebuke Jesus. And of course, Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke with his own rebuke in Mark 8.33, 8.33, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And here in Mark 14, Peter once again attempts to correct Jesus, just as he did in Mark 8. And just like in Mark 8, Jesus gives a response to Peter. Verse 30, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, tonight, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me not just once, but three times. Now, you would think that Peter, at this moment, would realize Jesus is really certain about this. And, you know, I mean, Peter has, has seen Jesus do the miraculous. He's seen him raise the dead, cause the blind to see and the lame to walk. He spoke of what the religious leaders were thinking, even though they didn't speak what they were thinking. He's predicted the future on several occasions. For goodness sake, he's the son of God. And you would think that that would have been enough for Peter to humble himself and shut his mouth before Jesus. But instead, he doubles down. Verse 31, but he said emphatically with a, with a level of forcefulness, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then Mark gives us a little insight into what the other disciples were thinking. And they all said the same. They all said the same. You see, even though the focus was on Peter, the other disciples were thinking the same way. They just weren't as intense or as bold as Peter. What's going on here? Here's what's going on. We are seeing in Peter and the other disciples the blinding power of the sin of pride. The reason why Peter tells Jesus he is wrong is because he truly believes he's not capable of doing such an evil thing in abandoning and denying Christ. He believes he's stronger, more courageous, more devoted, more self-sufficient than he actually 
is. And he and the disciples are going to eat some humble pie. See, this is what the sin of pride does. It blinds us from seeing just how weak, fragile, and sinful we truly are. The disciples truly believe themselves to be better than they actually are. And just as Simon Cowell knows better than those delusional singers, so Jesus knows better than the disciples just how weak and sinful they are. As Augustine says, God knows in us what we ourselves do not know in ourselves. For Peter did not know his weakness when he heard from the Lord that he would deny him three times. See, one of the things that Mark wants his readers to understand is that, that we, the readers, are supposed to see ourselves in the disciples, which isn't always encouraging. In other words, the disciples are held up as a picture of what human beings are like apart from God's transforming mercy and grace. What do we see in the disciples? Well, we see ignorance, unbelief, weakness, and we see most definitely pride. See, here's the point. Just as Peter thought himself incapable of abandoning and denying Jesus, just as he thought himself to be better than he actually was, so we think ourselves to be better than we actually are. As Matthew Henry so eloquently said, it is bred in the bone of us to think well of ourselves. Peter didn't just, uh, Peter didn't understand just how weak and sinful he was because he was blinded by his pride, which was sin. And we do not understand how weak and sinful we are because of pride in our lives. Now, you might say, well, Peter, I believe in the doctrine of total depravity. I know how sinful I am. And I would say to you, you believe in the doctrine, in that doctrine? Good. But you still don't know experientially the totality of your own depravity. You see, I would be concerned for any Christian who speaks with such boldness in believing that they would never deny Jesus. If one truly knows just how sinful one's heart is, then the only thing a Christian would dare say is something like, if not for the mercy of God and his sustaining grace, I too would deny Jesus. Lord, help me. See, I worry when I hear Christians say things like, I would never do that. How many husbands or wives at one point were convinced that they would never commit adultery? And they did. How many professing Christians who said that they would never deny Jesus? And they have. How many pastors who said that they would never allow their influence and their power to lead them into a place of all kinds of immorality and greed? And they did. Our hearts are capable of the greatest evils. And if we haven't committed those evils, 
It's only because of the mercy of God. Pride makes us blind to the severity of our sinful hearts. Pride makes us think that we are far better than we actually, than we actually are. I mean, think about this. Peter was claiming to know the future better than the one who had planned the future. So blind was Peter about himself that he really believed he was better than the other disciples, that even if all the other disciples will fall away, I won't. Now I want to address something that I think is really relatable to what we see here. And this might sound defensive uh, because I'm a pastor, but I'm not here to defend myself. But I do want to defend pastors. I haven't really experienced this. Um, you all have been very gracious towards me over the last two years while I've sought to pastor and lead us through these more difficult days, even if you haven't fully agreed with every decision that's been made. I haven't experienced any personal attacks. I haven't been attacked on social media or anything like that. I'm not well known. People might have said things behind my back, but I don't actually know that, so that's all good. But I have been deeply disturbed by the lack of respect from Christians towards pastoral authority over the last two years. Seeing Christians on the internet criticizing and mocking and calling pastors cowards and compromisers for their responses to government restrictions. When 95% of these Christians have no idea what's entailed with pastoring. And they have no idea of all the factors that have led pastors and elders to come to the conclusions they've come to, let alone they don't even know those pastors personally. And if I'm honest, I find it disgusting. There's a reason why the scriptures tell Christians not to bring a charge against an elder without two or three witnesses. And that's within the context of their own personal elders who they know. Yet it would seem totally fine for Christians to charge pastors who they don't even know as being cowards and compromisers. And of course, the assumption in those kinds of statements is this, is if I were in their position, I wouldn't be a compromiser and I wouldn't be a coward like them. In other words, you'd be exactly like the Apostle Peter. Even if all the other pastors are cowards, I would not be a, a coward like they are, Jesus. We so easily assume the best of ourselves and assume the worst in others. And I am not suggesting that pastors are not above criticism. But I am suggesting that when you think of men who have faithfully expounded God's word for 20, 30, 40 years, who have been men of integrity, who hold to all the same doctrines that we hold to, and then Christians call them cowards simply because their response is a little bit different than ours. It's embarrassing. If over these last two years you've spent more time calling pastors cowards rather than getting on your knees and praying for them, you should repent. And then thank God that he didn't make you a pastor. 
Peter thought he was better than the other disciples and he thought that Jesus was wrong in his words because his pride blinded him from the state of his own heart. You see, I think Peter is a great picture of the modern man. I think he captures so well how modern, secular people relate to Jesus. Peter is offended at Jesus' words because Jesus is exposing Peter to the fact that he's not as morally upright as he thinks he is. And because of that, he rejects Jesus' words. His pride will not accept Jesus' words as truth. And I think this captures so well today why people are offended by Jesus' words and why so many reject him. Because Jesus' words completely confront and challenge the modern assumption and narrative of the goodness of human beings. You see, here's the assumption of our modern secular society. Human beings are inherently good And sometimes they make mistakes and do bad things. Human beings are inherently good and sometimes they make mistakes and do bad things. That's the assumption of our modern society. But Jesus teaches the opposite. Humans are inherently evil and sometimes they do good things. In Matthew 7, verse 11, Jesus is talking about prayer and and he's speaking to the people and he says this, if you then who are evil, he calls them evil, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see Jesus' assumption? If you are evil you are also at the same time able to do or give good gifts to your children. But if you who are evil, that is, you are evil, and yet you're able to do these good things. Or Mark 7, 20-23, which Jesus makes it explicitly clear, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. I have no doubt that if I were to sit down with every single person in this room and we were to go through this list, you would be guilty of at least four and so would I. That's not a description that Jesus gives here of a good person who sometimes does bad things. That's a description of the condition of the human heart. This is the fundamental reason, for example, why the doctrine of hell is so offensive to the modern mind. Because if you believe that humans are inherently good and sometimes make mistakes, then the doctrine of hell is completely unjustifiable. And they'd be right. But Jesus challenges that assumption and declares that humanity is evil, fallen, sinful, and deserving of hell and are in need of saving. 
As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 22 to 23, for there is no distinction, that is, there is no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews who have received the law and the Gentiles who haven't. There's no distinction. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as he says even earlier in Romans 3, 9 to 12, what then, are, are the Jews any better off because they've been given the law? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Does that define humanity for you? Under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, Jesus, just like with Peter, says to all of us, you're not as good as you think you are. And until you humble yourself and acknowledge that Jesus may be speaking the truth about you, you will never accept his words, nor accept him. Because the sin of pride will blind you from seeing and accepting the truth. Pride will keep you from receiving the words of Christ, just as pride kept Peter from accepting the words of Christ. The disciples and Peter were truly convinced that they would never abandon nor deny Jesus, even if it meant their lives. But what happened? Well, verse 50 tells us, and they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. And then Peter in verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with, were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Just hours before this, Jesus, even if I am to die with you, I will not deny you. I do not even know this man. Peter's pride kept him from seeing that he valued his own life more than Jesus. He denied Christ instead of denying himself, which was precisely what he claimed he would do, which was what he was supposed to do. He knows, he knew Jesus' words in Mark 8, 34 to 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Peter heard those words. You know, there are a few verses that come to mind when I think of Peter's situation. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Brothers and sisters, pride has the power to blind us but it also will cause us to resist the words of Jesus just as Peter resisted the words of Jesus. And by the Spirit of God, we must wage war against pride in our lives. We must take a sledgehammer to the tower of pride in our lives. Peter and the disciples reveal the blinding power of sin, of the sin of pride. Secondly, we see Jesus' humiliation and vindication. We see his humiliation and vindication. Let's begin with his humiliation. We see his humiliation in two ways. First, it's obvious he's going to be abandoned by his closest friends. Men who have, for the last three years, have, have spent almost every moment with him, have hung on his every word, been amazed by his miracles, moved by his compassion. These men, his closest friends, will abandon him. He will know the humiliation of abandonment. His entire ministry, in fact, and and specifically the end of his life, was an act of humiliation. Betrayed by his own, abandoned by his closest friends, his own people, the Jews, rejected him and then crucified him. He was completely abandoned, completely alone. Our Savior knows the feeling and experience of abandonment. See, some of us here this morning know this all too well. You've been abandoned by friends. You've been abandoned by a parent. You've been abandoned by your siblings. You've been abandoned by a spouse. Jesus knows. He understands the pain of abandonment. As Hebrews 4.15 alludes to that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Our Savior is not just any Savior. He is the abandoned Savior. This was a part of his humiliation. The second thing we see about his humiliation resides in these simple words in verse 27. I will strike the shepherd. This is at the heart of Jesus' humiliation. He will be struck. But the question we need to ask is, by who? Who is the I will strike? Well, who's speaking in Zechariah 13.7? It's God. It's God. God will strike the shepherd. God will strike Jesus. God the Father will strike the incarnate Son of God. This striking is at the heart of the Christian faith and it's at the heart of Jesus' humiliation. 
In Jesus' humiliation, the scriptures make clear that he was voluntarily laying down his life as a sacrificial offering for the sins of the world. That is, he was taking the punishment for our sins upon himself. That punishment was the striking of God. This is precisely how Isaiah 53, a prophecy about Jesus, about Jesus' suffering, conveys it. Isaiah 53, 4-6, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed by who? Crushed by God. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The chastisement that was supposed to be for us was placed upon Him, and from Him bearing that chastisement, we have experienced peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord, Yahweh God, has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God is the one who laid on the shepherd the iniquity of us all. Or jump down a little further in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord, or the will of God, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. You cannot understand Christianity if you do not understand this. That you and I were born into sin. That we are sinful creatures who have broken and defied God's moral law. His law which was for our good. We have broken His moral law and because of that we are guilty and deserving of being crushed by God. That is of being punished by God for our sins. Justice. God is just and he will not allow sin to go unpunished. You see, you ought not fear breaking the law of the woke. You ought to fear breaking the law of God. But God is also a God full of mercy. And he sent his only son, the great shepherd, Jesus, to stand in our place and to bear the punishment for us. That is He was struck by God so that we would not be. He bore the curse so that we would not be cursed. This was his humiliation and it was all voluntary. He laid down his life for our sins willingly. He was willingly struck on our behalf and Christ calls all men and women to repent of their sins and to believe upon him for the forgiveness of their sins. Have you done that? Will you do it this morning? This is at the heart of the Christian faith. And Jesus being struck 
was at the center of his humiliation. As Paul describes it in Philippians 2, 6-8, who though he, that is Christ, was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humiliation. You see, here in these short verses, short verses in Mark 14, we see the humiliation of Christ both in his abandonment and, his be- and in his being struck by God. But we also see his vindication. And you see this alluded to in verse 28, where he says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It's subtle. But in these words, Jesus is speaking of his victory, his vindication. The story doesn't end with him being struck. But because he was willing to be struck, God saw it fit that Jesus would rise from the dead and receive his vindication. As the rest of Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His humiliation leads to his exaltation. Or as Romans 1, 3-4 says, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, Christ rising from the dead is God's declaration to the world that this is my Son. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that he's going to be struck and that they will abandon him. But the story doesn't end like that. The story ends, or should I say, it begins with his resurrection. Jesus knew that he'd be abandoned and struck, but he also knew that he'd be raised. He knew his humiliation would precede his exaltation. And this, friends, is why Jesus was able to endure his voluntary humiliation. Because he knew it ended in his vindication. This is precisely why the writer of Hebrews calls followers of Jesus to endure because Christ endured his humiliation, which resulted in his exaltation. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have a race that's been placed before us and we're called to to run with endurance. And then he gives us the example of Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now I want you to see the argument there. He was able to endure the cross, despising the shame of the cross. He was able to endure that because his eyes were fixed upon a joy that was set before him. What was that joy? The writer says next, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
The joy of Jesus that enabled him to endure his present, his current humiliation was the fact that one day he would rise and be vindicated at God's right hand. And we, as followers of Christ, have that same calling to endure our own humiliations in order that we might also reign with Christ. Now you might say, well, Peter, Jesus was able to endure because he knew the future. I don't know the future. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But the reality is you do know the future. You might not know the details of your everyday future experiences, but Jesus has told you the future. He has revealed what awaits every redeemed disciple of his who endures humiliation in this life. As we read in Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We too will experience the vindication and glorification of Christ. In these verses, Jesus conveys to his disciples both his humiliation and his vindication. And the third and final thing that I want us to see is this. Jesus' restoring mercy. Jesus' restoring mercy. You can so easily miss this. But in these verses, Jesus reveals that despite his disciples abandoning him and Peter denying him three times, In his mercy, he's going to restore them to fellowship with him and commission them to be his ambassadors. And you see this in the simple words of verse 28, I will go before you to Galilee. I will go before who? Before you. Before all of you, the ones who have abandoned me, I will go before you to Galilee. You see, despite the disciples abandoning him, despite Peter denying him three times, Jesus, with these words, demonstrates that in his mercy, he's going to restore them to fellowship and commission them for ministry. What's in Galilee? It's the place where Jesus will commission his disciples to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If that's not mercy, I don't know what is. You see, it's it's one thing for Jesus to, to forgive them. It's a whole other thing for him to commission them to be his ambassadors, despite the fact that just a few days ago, they abandoned him. I mean, some of us, if if we were abandoned by our closest friends or by our family members in our darkest moment, some of us might come to a place where we could forgive them. 
but to restore that trust? See, have you ever thought about this? That Jesus, in establishing the church, the body of Christ, the household of God, he placed as, as the foundation of the church ten men who had abandoned him and one who denied him three times. And the one who denied him three times actually became the most important of them all. The two most important apostles in the books, book of Acts was a man who denied Christ three times and a man who persecuted the church, the Apostle Paul. If that's not mercy, I don't know what is. They received his mercy. They were restored by his mercy. And they were used for the glory of God because of his mercy. And because these men who once abandoned Jesus were recipients of his mercy, each of them later in their lives suffered and died for Jesus. You know what this tells me? No matter how horrifying, no matter how evil your sin may be, there is a fountain of mercy if only you would drink from it. But you might say, Peter, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But Jesus does. And if all your sin were to be the same amount as the body of water in Lake Superior, then know that Christ's mercy would be more than both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans combined. Our sins may be many, and they may even be awful. But his mercy is more. Christ has a restoring mercy even for those who deny him three times. There is a restoring mercy for you if you would but drink of his mercy. You see, I have no doubt that Peter often looked back on this night and reminded himself that he was this close to becoming a Judas, if not for the mercy of Jesus. The only difference between Judas and Peter was the mercy of Jesus Christ towards Peter. Now there's one last thing that I want us to think about. And it's related to Christ's mercy. There is a sweet comfort in knowing that Jesus knows our sins of tomorrow. And yet he has mercy for our sins of tomorrow. Jesus knew that the disciples were going to sin. He knew that Peter would deny him three times. And he knows how each of us are going to sin this afternoon, tomorrow, and ten years from now. And my question is, if Jesus knows the disciples would abandon him and Peter would deny him, why didn't he stop them from sinning? He has the power to. So why would he let them sin? Why does he let you sin? Have you ever wondered that? There's two ideas that come to mind. The first is this. 
Jesus allowed this to happen in the disciples' lives so that they would be humbled. If the disciples had not abandoned Jesus, if Peter had not denied Jesus, they would have continued to pridefully think that they were better than they actually were. And sometimes, hear this, sometimes Christ in his infinite wisdom and purposes will allow us to feel and taste the sinfulness of our own hearts so that we might be humbled and placed in a position to receive his mercy. The disciples needed to learn that. They were not in a position to receive the mercy of Jesus. The second reason, I think, is this. Jesus simply delights to shower his children in mercy. I truly believe that Christ will allow us to taste the bitterness of our own sin in order for us to taste the sweetness of his mercy. These events were necessary for the disciples and Peter to marvel at the mercy of Christ and to become the disciples that Jesus intended them to become. Jesus has a restoring mercy. Come and drink of his mercy. Let's pray. Father, that is what we need. We need your mercy. That fountain of mercy that never runs dry, but continues to flow. Help us to swim in that fountain of mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.